want to start is, what's your favorite holiday? Have you ever thought about, like, if you only got to experience one more holiday one time, oh, what, which holiday and, and why? Is it Christmas, Christmas Eve, you know, there's that Christmas Day, Christmas Eve thing. I have friends who talk about Thanksgiving as their favorite holiday. Would it be Thanksgiving for you? Fourth of July, perhaps, if you grew up in Laurel like I did, where you get to walk down the street and shoot bottle rockets out of your hand, maybe it's the Fourth of July. Or the Super Bowl, I think I'd put that on my list. It's not technically a holiday, but I mean, there's once a year where you eat that cheese that doesn't expire for 30 years and feel okay about yourself. But so there's the which holiday, and then there's the why. Like, why, why that one? Is it the food? Is it the people? Is it the gifts? Is it the place you go? Uh, what, what, what is the thing? And where I think that can be valuable is, then imagine this. Imagine you showed up to your friend's Super Bowl party and you quickly realized that there was no game on the TV, just, just the sound of music. And no hot wings, no nachos, no Velveeta that expires when we're all long dead, but like just kale, which I actually kind of like kale, but let's just go with kale. <laughs> Or imagine that you showed up for, for Thanksgiving. I don't know if you've seen that. Everybody loves Raymond, where they took tofu and shaped it like a turkey. But imagine you showed up for Thanksgiving, and there was no turkey. There was just this blob of whatever that stuff is shaped like a turkey. At worst, you just lost a friend, right? Or you, you just, or uh, I think David Brooks says in The Second Mountain that marriage is this endeavor where two warring tribes send their best warriors to battle to figure out which holidays went out. Like, at that point, like, if you're her family, like, they just lost, right? Like, that's that's worst. At best, you're going, there better be a good reason for this, right? The reason why I think that's helpful is, I I don't know about you, but, man, I've been following Jesus for a couple decades. I think the cross and the resurrection is uh, a couple of the most important days, the most important days in human history. I I firmly believe in, in the cross and the resurrection as historical events, And yet there are times when sometimes the cross is confusing. There are times where if I turn it a certain way, it looks less beautiful and more like a human sacrifice cult. There's times where if I'm not careful, the way it's angled for me is it sounds like there is an angry God whose way of appeasing said anger was by killing his son. And while on the one hand I don't think that's the story, sometimes that's the way it's presented and the way it comes across. And I just, it's hard for me to sit with. But here's the good news. N.T. Wright was the first one that I heard say this, and I'm indebted this morning to him, as well as a guy named Brad Petrie, who is this remarkable Catholic scholar around all things uh, Passover. But N.T. Wright, the way he said it is, the great news is that when Jesus sought to explain the cross to his followers, he didn't give a sermon, he didn't write a paper, there wasn't this long intellectual expose, he actually co-opted an ancient meal, like, so Jesus, when, there, there's really two places in the Gospels where he explains his cross. One of them is very brief. The other one is around what you know as the Lord's Supper or communion. And contextually what he did, and, and you may be familiar with this, and I just want to do a review this morning. You may not, and maybe this will help you rescue your image of God from this kind of tyrannical being. What Jesus did was he took the Super Bowl, so to speak, and he got rid of the game and put in the sound of music. He took this this festival, this meal called Passover, and on the one hand, he observed it, and on another hand, he kind of twisted it and changed it. And it seems like, especially upon reflection, his followers in the early church, when they decided, like, how do we explain to people the cross and its importance, they went with a picture 
Less than a long expose. Now those exposés are there. Paul does a little of them himself. But in the gospel accounts, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John, they just sit with the tension of this ancient meal. So here's what I want to do this morning. Is I just want to try to tell a story around what is this meal? What is Passover? And how can it help us really understand what it is that we're celebrating on Easter? Passover as a meal, some historians... I would argue that Passover is the longest continuously celebrated religious meal in human history. If you put Moses at about 1500 BCE, we're talking about something that's been celebrated most of the time for 3,500 years. It got its start when Moses, the great leader of, of Israel, who was before this a failed leader of Israel, when Moses was called by God from a burning bush to go back to Egypt to stand up to Pharaoh and that God through Moses, and this part of the story I think is so important, God through Moses was going to rescue these slave people from a power that was greater than themselves. So Moses goes back. Some of you will know the story. He goes toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. God goes toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. Moses goes toe-to-toe with, with the, the priests of Egypt. There's these ten plagues. The tenth plague involves a certain kind of ritual, a certain kind of act that really is what gives us Passover. And we pick up with that in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12 starts this way. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to recognize, wait a minute, there's some emphasis here on on what? On new beginnings. Something new is starting here. This is like day one after you graduate. Like This is like the morning after the wedding. This is like the moment when you hold the baby in your hands for the first time. This is that new start. There's this emphasis on something new is happening. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they're to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household, If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day, so there's an attachment that happens, of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall shall slaughter it at twilight. Now I think we have to park on that word slaughter. Because if we're not careful, this captures again this idea of an angry God who, who has to kill animals to get to people. But, but what do we know about this season of human history? Well, modern refrigeration had not yet been invented. Uh, you, you did not have the luxury of a meatpacking plant three states away. I, I think there's permission to back away a little bit from the gore idea because what's true about every turkey, so to speak, for a Jewish family? If you're going to eat it, you've got to kill it. And if you're going to have prime rib on Christmas, then dad gets the unenviable job of going out and killing the cow that you've been raising since you started 4-H. It's not all about gore. Part of it is it's just about the reality of life. These were a people who they understood that when they eat meat, something lost its life. For me, that's helpful to just realize that this this doesn't have to always come from such an angry place. Verse 7, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Again, blood for us, I mean, you can go years of your life and not be exposed to any of it other than that which comes from your nose. It's a foreign substance for most of us. But what is blood to an ancient people? Well, the picture here is, of course, they're drawing a circle around their front door. 
What's going to happen on Passover? The angel of death is going to come in the night. The firstborn of everyone who doesn't have this blood on their door is going to die. So yes, there's this image of death here. What's going to happen in the morning? You know, you, you yawn, you wake up, you head out the door looking for your morning coffee. What, what are you going to walk through? You're going to walk through a circle of blood. As much as these people are familiar with death and the slaughter of animals, what else would they have been very familiar with? Birth, that of animals, that of humans. And birth tends to come from what? A circle of blood. This isn't all a picture of death. This is a picture of life. The first day, the beginning, something new is going to happen. You're going to emerge through. Jesus talks about this with Nicodemus. You've got to be born of water and blood. What is water and blood for people who are up close with birth as a way of life? It's new birth. There's a picture here happening. You're about to be born out of Egypt. But wait a minute, I thought we were talking about a meal. Well, yeah, that's what we're working to. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. What's going on here? Well, this isn't just, a, it's not a sacrifice. It's, it's, a, it's more so a meal. What's with the herbs? What's with the bread? Well, we'll get to that a little bit. But I think one thing that's clear some of you are really familiar with all these different Seder meals and these different interpretations of ancient Passover, and I think those are beautiful and helpful. If we're being honest, we don't really know what Passover would have looked like in its original form or even all the nuances of Jesus' day. What we know is there's this meal that God wanted people to eat that somehow captured God's rescuing them from Egypt. In fact, it's not a one-time deal. Listen to verse 14. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. In other words, for 3,500 years. And if you look at the, the First Testament or the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, what you'll see is some of God's most frustrated moments were when Israel failed to practice or aspects of Israel failed to practice Passover. But why? Why are we doing this? Chapter 13, verse 8. You shall tell your child on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for them. No. For me, when I came out of Egypt. At the core of Passover was God's desire for a people to reflect every year on this idea, and it's a simple idea. Once I was a slave in Egypt, and a God who's more powerful than me, a God who brought mercy to me, rescued me from a bondage I couldn't get myself out of. Why are we eating bitter herbs? What are these some things? Why are we eating this parsley? Where's the salad dressing? Because once you, you suffered under the bitter, bitter slavery of Egypt. So the question becomes, okay, so how does this evolve? I mean, this is chapter or book two of the Bible. How does it evolve over time? And the answer, of course, is it evolves. All of our festival evolves. Even in the scriptures, it evolves. For example, not long after this, after Solomon builds the temple, Passover quickly becomes very yoked to the temple. What started out as, as a domestic meal together, the head of household sacrifices the sheep, becomes very quickly a very religious, Jerusalem-centered, temple-centered experience. No longer is it in the countryside, now it's in Jerusalem. No longer is it dad, now it's a priest. But here's a question. Suppose, suppose the temple's destroyed. 
which in fact happened in 586, 587 BC. Suppose you lose your whole identity. I mean, we started exploring this a year ago that the Bible knows this cycle of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. What happens when there's no longer a temple? Suddenly you're a citizen living in a foreign land in Babylon. Suddenly you're a, you're, you're a Jewish person living in Alexandria, Egypt, where it's not necessarily safe for you to be Jewish, or at the very least, you don't have a temple. Then how do you celebrate a meal that God says, celebrate it every year? Well, the rabbis would say, here's how you do it. Because this took work. This was so much of the Bible's story is working out. How, how do we do this faith when temple is gone? And here's what the rabbi said. The altar, that gets replaced with the family dinner table, although, of course, their dinner tables look different than ours. The sheep, no priest to sacrifice it, no temple to sacrifice it at, that gets replaced by bread. The blood of the sheep gets replaced by wine which also means that Passover at that point, and you can look at this in the prophets, uh, Ezekiel talks about this, many of them do, but there's this idea that, that Passover stopped just being about a rescue that happened one day. It was about that. And it became about like the day that we'll have a vaccine, so to speak. It became about like yearning for, longing for reorientation. It came about like someday God's going to send a new Moses. And even when Israel found themselves back in Jerusalem and the temple was rebuilt, what wasn't lost on them is they didn't have their freedom. They were still under a foreign king. And so Passover had this dual purpose. We look back and see a God who's capable of rescuing us from a situation we can't get ourselves out of. And we look ahead. And the way they would say it, to a new Moses... In fact, by Jesus' day, what we know, one of the, one of the things we can know quite clearly from, from history is that by Jesus' day, every Passover at midnight, they opened the gates of the city. Why? Because the belief was that the, that the new exodus will start at midnight on Passover. And that gets us to Da Vinci. Is it Da Vinci that did the famous painting? That gets us to what you might call the, the, the Lord's Supper. And that gets us not to Luke, but to Matthew. I'm sorry. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, they're in Bethany or somewhere in that area. So, so Jesus is doing Thanksgiving. They're going, where do you want us to celebrate? This is a test. Do you have the audacity to do Passover, not in Jerusalem? Jesus says, uh, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover meal. Here's where Jesus starts messing with it. Passover, according to Exodus, is to be celebrated with who? Your family. Jesus is here going to celebrate it with who? His family. His faith family. There's something going on here. And, and sometimes we look at this guy like, what, what, there's this, all these kind of theories about this guy that's not named and what's going on there. Probably the most logical historical explanation, because what we know from Josephus, a first century historian, is that somewhere around a quarter of a million people came to Jerusalem on Passover. It wasn't that big of a city. And so you wouldn't Airbnb a room to sleep in at your house. If you had a few extra, you would put it on Airbnb so that, so that some other family could rent a room to, pass, to, to, to observe Passover within the city walls. 
Probably Jesus had some kind of a friend who we talked about this in advance. There was a room set aside. Now here's a bigger question. Did the disciples go to the temple and, and offer a sheep? I, I don't know. And the scholars that I trust the most would go, the Gospels aren't clear on that. Is this an area where Jesus started twisting the story? Or did he send his disciples to temple to buy a sheep? Uh, to me, the Gospels are very, very unclear on that one. But what are they clear on? While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. What's Jesus supposed to say at that moment? What story is he supposed to tell? He's supposed to be talking about Egypt and Moses and Pharaoh and, and, and the bondage that came from Pharaoh. What's Jesus talking about? His body, his death. Somehow he's co-opting Passover to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Suddenly now he, John the Baptist, in the early parts of the Gospel of John, there goes the Lamb of God. What's going on there? Jesus becomes the Passover. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Not the blood that was wiped around the doorposts. His blood suddenly becomes the symbol of redemption and rescue and freedom. Now, what about this word sin? Because some of us, we, we trip here, and, and maybe there's good reason for that. We are primarily programmed, in my opinion, and N.T. Wright speaks a lot about this, we're programmed to think of sin as a moral violation. Sin is lying, sin is stealing, sin is cheating. Sure, okay, we, we can make that allowance. But what is the story of Israel? Not what's the principle, what's the story of Israel? Once God made these people, they were to be God's people in the world, they screwed it up. God tapped a guy named Abraham and said, what? I'm going to bless you and you'll bless others. God's redemption was going to flow through this family. See, what N.T. Wright points out is sin in the narrative is as much about vocational violation as it is moral violation. In other words, sin has as much to do with who you're supposed to be, how you, uh, how you show up in the world, as it does whether or not you lie. Sin is about a God who invites you to show up at work and show up at neighborhood and show up in relationship in different ways. And so what is Jesus doing? Suddenly you start going like, oh, I see why, they got, why he got himself killed. What's he claiming? You, you guys have screwed up the story. We've screwed up the story. And now we're starting new right here with me. What do the disciples do with this? I mean, they're leaving the house going, man, I was looking forward to the hot wings. What do they do? I think they do just that. Like, what the heck? They seem utterly confused. Moments later, hours later, Jesus is arrested. They run. Not long after that, he's put on trial. They deny even knowing him. Not long after that, he's crucified. And there's an exception, but there aren't very many. They're mostly gone. They're trying to figure out what life looks like now that Jesus has failed. Then what happens? Let's be clear on this. I think it's important, and Annie Stanley does a great job of conveying this. There, there was no party standing outside the tomb counting down 10, 9, 8. These people might be ancient, but they weren't stupid. They know that dead people stay dead. What happened? Well, we believe, I believe, can't prove it, but I think there's great historical evidence for it, that Jesus walked out of that tomb alive. 
And he kind of had to work hard to get his disciples' attention to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And eventually it seems that what they did was like, oh, okay, it's coming together. And when years later they're writing gospel accounts, what for them really captured what happened at the cross? Oh, yeah, remember we did that meal and we were trying to figure out like, man, I was really looking forward to turkey, but we had this nasty toe. Uh, oh, Jesus co-opted the story to say what? My death. Like, we have a new Moses and a new Exodus, and this is the part that I think is so beautiful, and a new Passover. Why did the early church cling so hard to what we call Eucharist or communion? And why has there been such historical church debates about whether or not that bread becomes the literal body of Jesus? Why? Because Passover isn't done until you've consumed it. What is Easter? Tim Mackey has this great metaphor. It's uh, that of a flower. When I listen to him tell the story, I'm like, man, we live this every spring. It's going to happen again tomorrow. 70 degrees today, you're going to look at the tulips in your yard and they're starting to come up and there's green blades of grass and if you're on the trail, you can see the early signs of the bitterroots and, and our own version of the crocus flower. And then what happens tomorrow? 41 in snow. And you're left with this incredibly paradoxical, conflicting image of what? The promise of new life. Simultaneously with the like reminder of what you're coming from. This like, ugh. The promise that spring is coming. What, what does it mean to be the church of God, the people of God, a follower of Jesus? It's the blade of green grass in the midst of the snow, isn't it? It's that you're pointing ahead to what you see isn't the final story. There's something more real than this, and it's not way out there. It intersects this. What was Passover? It was the invitation to step through a doorway of blood on the first day, so to speak, in the first month. It was the new birth. And the design isn't that that means that we all have to go be clergy. The design is everybody becomes the priesthood of God. No matter what your business, no matter what your stage of life, no matter what your relational sphere looks like, we're all the blades of grass. And it just feels to me like we, we are in this intersection of the last years of experience. And that God is, God is going to prove faithful. And you and I get the opportunity to be the faithful people of God who represent, no, 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 there is hope. There is life. I'd like to pray for you. And we're going to take communion, God. Thanks, Lord, for, for Christ. Thanks for the gospel writers. Thanks for the early church. Thanks for our, our Jewish heritage that captures stories like that of Passover and, and helps us understand in those historic days of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, something beautiful, something important happened. And sometimes when we try to break it down into complex theology, we just, we mess it up. But we have this historic image of a meal that served as a reminder that once we were slaves to Egypt, once we were slaves to sin, once we were slaves to death. And in ways, God, that we don't have to fully articulate or understand, we, we just believe that Jesus' death and resurrection set us free from that into new life. Would you help it not be about us, uh, but about the community in which we sit? Amen. 
If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.